Champagne Butterfield. And you're going to get to hear her three times over the course of this weekend. You're in for a great treat. I enjoyed uh, talking with her uh, for an hour or so a while ago on the phone and then in the car just listening to uh, this lady uh, speak has just been a, a, a blessing to us. We decided a long time ago that we wanted her to be a part of, uh, of our conference. And I think we're blessed because she's really hard to schedule now. But we were way ahead of our game, so you think supper was late, you can at least congratulate us for being early in scheduling her for this conference. <laughs> Jenny, my wife, and I love culinary shows, so we thought anybody with the name Butter and Champagne in their name <laughs> had to be. I mean, seriously, can you think of a more delectable name, Rosaria Champagne Butterfield? And she wrote a book about, she wrote a book about secret thoughts. I mean, what was she thinking about? You know, dessert? <laughs> I'm thinking of rosemary butter and wine sauce glaze. Um, she's an English professor. And I seriously, for uh, when I was in college, I thought English professor and nice, a nice English professor was an oxymoron. But here is a nice English professor. And um, she's a Christian. And I think that's what uh, makes Rosaria most a blessing to us. You've all read her testimony. You're very familiar with her book, most of you. I think of Rosaria, and one of the reasons God is using her is that she is a wonderful intrusion into the evangelical subculture that for some of us, and I, I know I speak for myself personally, but for some of us, the evangelical subculture here in America has been, become so unappealing that there have been times that we've actually wondered if American evangelicalism or American Christianity and real Christianity uh, could ever cohabit. And uh, the two seem so irretrievably integrated that there seems to be no hope for real Christianity. We, as evangelical Christians, didn't ask God for Rosaria. He put Rosaria in our face. And her conversion story and her presence in evangelical Christianity here in America, I think, is invasive. Because it doesn't accept the easy categorizations that the moral majority forced us to live by. I think it's sad that Rosaria's conversion story seems almost paradigm-shifting to American evangelicalism because, really, it's a biblical norm. Rosaria's title to her book says that she is a quote-unquote unlikely convert. And therein is the problem in Americanized Christianity subtly highlighted. The subculture of American Christianity is soul-shaken by a quote-unquote unlikely convert because most see themselves as likely converts. But in reality, we are all unlikely converts, and all those of us that grew up in evangelicalism are, quote-unquote, we think of ourselves as, quote-unquote, likely converts, and we actually grew to believe that these two categories exist, the likely and the unlikely. So we're blown away by the story of someone that we all agree was clearly unlikely. But sisters, we are, according to the scriptures, all unlikely converts. Not one of us ever sought God. 
We were all dead in our sins. And there is no such thing as dead, dead, or deadest. We, are all, we were all dead and unlikely. And we've all been saved by amazing grace. Actually, I do like English. I do like writing. I used to have a blog that I maintained, which I called my it was Pensees after Pascal, the profi- professor. And I called myself uh, um, Contented Misfit. And in truth, we are a contented misfit. And there was one English professor, David Foster Wallace, that I loved as a misfit. He had a line in one of his novels, everybody is identical in their secret unspoken belief that way deep down they are different from everyone else, end quote. And that's the lie that we tend to live by. But the scriptures say there is no temptation that has taken us but such as is common to man. In fact, is he was ironical when he said that, of course, because that's what, that's what makes us the same in that we think we're different. But when we come to Christ, we realize that we are all of the same. We're the same in our fallenness, and once we come to Christ, we're the same in our fellowship. And so it's uh, with real joy that I introduced Rosaria Butterfield. Good evening. Can you hear me? It is a real pleasure to be here. I will be speaking three times. Uh, Tonight, I will be speaking about conversion to Christ. Tomorrow morning, I'll be talking about identity in Christ. And then tomorrow afternoon, I will be talking about community through Christ. So if you'll just bow your heads with me and we can open in prayer, and then I'll begin. Heavenly Father, We believe, now please help our unbelief. Help us, Lord, to be good company for the suffering. And help us, Lord, to deal rigorously with our own sins so that we can be safe to one another. Lord, we thank you that the gospel story is consistently one of your gathering in women who are broken and misunderstood and maligned and misrepresented. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are good company for the suffering, and we love you with all of our hearts. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray, amen. I am going to leave some time after I talk, each of my talks, to field questions. So just know that, not a bunch of questions, but I don't want you to feel like you've experienced some kind of hit and run, if you know what I mean. How do I tell you about my conversion to Christianity without making it sound like an alien abduction or a train wreck? Truth be told, it felt a little like both. The language normally used to describe this odd miracle does not work for me. I didn't read one of those tacky self-help books with a thin coating of Christian themes, examine my life against the tenets of the Bible the way, well, one might hold up one car insurance policy against all others, and then cleanly and logically make a decision for Christ. While I did make choices along the path of this journey, they never felt logical, risk-free, or even sane. Neither did I feel like a victim of an emotional earthquake and collapse gracefully into the arms of my savior like some holy and sanctified Scarlet O'Hara, 
having been claimed by Christ's irresistible grace. Heretical as it might seem, Christ and Christianity seemed eminently resistible. My Christian life unfolded as I was just living my life, my normal life. And in the normal course of life, questions emerged that exceeded my secular feminist worldview. And those questions simply sat quietly in the crevices of my mind until I met a most unlikely friend, a Christian pastor. Had a pastor named Ken Smith not shared the gospel with me for years and years, over and over again, not in some used car salesman way, but in an organic, spontaneous, and compassionate way, those questions might still be lodged in the crevices of my mind, and I might never have met the most unlikely of friends, Jesus Christ himself. I had a normal childhood, whatever that means. I was raised in the Catholic faith, and I attended predominantly liberal Catholic schools. My all-girl high school discipled me in the life skills that I use today. I learned there to read deeply and well, to diagram a sentence before I tried to interpret it, and to look out for the unloved and draw them in. I had a heterosexual adolescence. In college, I met my first boyfriend, and it was a heady experience. And at the same time, an undercurrent of longing inserted itself into my intense friendships with women. I didn't make much of this at first, and from the age of 22 until 28, I continued to date men, and at the same time feel a sense of longing and connection that toppled over the edges for my women friends. The repetitious sensibility rooted and grew. I simply preferred the company of women. And in my late 20s, enhanced at that time by feminist philosophy and LGBT political advocacy, my homosocial preference morphed into homosexuality. The shift was subtle, not startling. My lesbian identity and my love for my lesbian community developed in sync with my lesbian sexual practice. Life finally came together for me and made sense. I studied Freud. I cheered that the DSM had long since removed homosexuality from its list of disorders, thus rendering homosexuality in the eyes of the world and the academy normal. With no prohibitions or constraints, by the time I graduated from Ohio State with my PhD in English Literature and Critical Theory, I left the Buckeye State with my first lesbian partner. We moved to New York for me to begin a tenure-track position in the English department at Syracuse University. My life as a lesbian seemed normal. I considered it an enlightened, chosen path. Lesbianism seemed like a cleaner and a more moral sexual practice. Always preferring symmetry to asymmetry, I believed I had found my real self. What happened to my Catholic training? I believed now that it was anti-intellectual and superstitious. The name Jesus, which had rolled off my tongue in a little girl's prayers, then rolled off my back in college, now made me recoil in anger. As a professor of English and women's studies, I cared about morality, justice, and compassion. As a 19th century scholar, fervent for the worldviews of Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin, I strove to stand with the disempowered. 
and my life at the time was happy, meaningful, and full. My next lesbian partner and I shared many vital interests. AIDS activism, children's health and literacy, golden retriever rescue, our Unitarian Universalist Church, just to name a few. And it was hard to argue that she and I were anything but good citizens and caregivers. Indeed, our big fat gay agenda involved really scary things like feeding the poor, housing the homeless, and teaching reading to the illiterate. The LGBT community values hospitality and applies it with skill, sacrifice, and integrity. And indeed, I honed the hospitality gifts that I use today as a pastor's wife in my gay and lesbian community. I began researching the religious right and their politics of hatred against people like me. And to do this, I began reading the Bible while looking out for some Bible scholar to help me wade through this complex book. I took note that the Bible was an engaging literary display of every genre and trope and type. It had edgy poetry, deep and complex philosophy, and compelling narrative stories. It also embodied a worldview that I hated. Sin, repentance, Sodom and Gomorrah, absurd. Sorry. At this time, the promise keepers came to town and parked their little circus at the university. <laughs> I was on a war against stupid at the time. So I wrote an article published in the local newspaper. It was 1997. The article generated many rejoinders so many that I kept a Xerox box on each side of my desk, one for hate mail and one for fan mail. Maybe I should do that again. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe not. One letter that I received defied my filing system. It was from Ken Smith, the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind and inquiring letter. Ken did not argue with my article. Rather, he asked me to defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. In his letter, he shared his love for the Bible, his concern that college students were not reading the Bible as part of a literature curriculum, and he described Jesus as someone who entered into history, not someone who emerged from it. I thought that was insane. I believed that people proceed from history and are shaped for good or for ill by the culture that molds them. I didn't know how to respond to his letter, so I threw it away. And later that night, I fished it out of the department's recycling bin and put it back on my desk, where it confronted me for a week with a worldview divide that demanded a response. As a postmodern intellectual, I operated from a historical materialist worldview. But Christianity is a supernatural worldview. And if I was going to understand how this book, the Bible, got so many well-meaning people off track, and how this man, Jesus, persuaded so many people to follow him, Ken's letter showed me that I needed to understand Christianity as a supernatural idea. At this point in my life, the category of the supernatural was reserved for Stephen King novels, who was, by the way, a very big donor to the English department at Syracuse. So, I've read them all. 
I know, my pedigree is very impressive. <laughs> it gets worse. <laughs> yeah. With this letter, Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me, a heathen. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses at placards at gay pride marches. That Christians who mocked me at Gay Pride Day were happy that I and everyone I loved was going to hell was as clear as the sky is blue. But Ken's letter did not mock, it engaged. So when he invited me to dinner at his house to discuss these matters more fully, I accepted. My motives at the time were clear. Surely this would be good for my research. But something else happened. Ken and his wife Floy and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. And they did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. And when we ate together, Ken prayed in a way that I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. At my first meal at their home, Ken and Floy omitted two very important steps in the rule book of how Christians should deal with a heathen like me. Number one, they did not share the gospel with me. And number two, they did not invite me to church. And because of these omissions to the Christian rule book, as I had come to know it, I felt that when Ken extended his hand to me in friendship, it was safe for me to close mine in his. I started meeting with Ken and Floyd regularly, reading the Bible in earnest, with pen in hand and notebook in lap. I read the way a glutton devours. And slowly and over time, the Bible started to take on a life and meaning that startled me. Some of my well-worn paradigms no longer stuck, and I had to at least ponder the hermeneutical claim that this book was different than all the others because it was inspired by a holy God and inherently true and trustworthy. And this led me to go through the presuppositional truth claims just to check the math of the meaning here. And the logic claims go like this. Number one, if this was a book written by men who are inspired by the Holy Spirit, then its admonitions about sin were not applied cultural phobia. You see, prior to reading the Bible for myself, I believed that the category of sin was merely applied cultural phobia. But if God is good, then his goodness is unrestrained by time, and it anticipates and guards against the ill treatment of a people group. I noticed as I read the Bible that its admonitions about sin were followed by offers of grace. And this struck me as odd. The God of the Bible deals differently with people when we deal differently with him? I just didn't catch that by hanging out with Christians. <laughs> I don't know. That just, didn't, that just didn't kind of come up to my radar. Number two, the second presuppositional claim is this. If God is the creator of all things, and if the Bible has his seal of truth and power, then the Bible had the right to interrogate my life and my culture and not the other way around. You see, even as a postmodern reader, I understood the idea that authority can only depend upon that which is higher than itself. I was a professor at the time. If your paper was due on Tuesday and you turned it into me on Wednesday, I felt no guilt in giving you an F if I told you that's what I was going to do. 
we all deal in a world of authority. And this was a bit troubling to me. Who is higher than God? I wondered. My friends knew that I was reading the Bible. First, the dean of the chapel took me out to lunch and shared his belief that the Old Testament was dispensable and with it, any prohibition about sexuality and immorality. But I had been studying and reading the three different narratives of the Old Testament, and it seemed to me that you couldn't dispense with the entire Old Testament without violating um, a universal rule about canonicity. In fact, one I had been teaching my graduate students that week. And the rule is this, you can't create canons within canons. So I thought, hmm, I wonder if this guy should sit in on my class and we can kind of work this one out. This doesn't make sense to me. Um, the chapel dean's position seemed like a hermeneutic of convenience, fitting the text to fit my experience, and not a hermeneutic according to the integrity of the Bible itself, where the text transforms, or is supposed to transform, the very nature of humanity. But next, and a more important encounter, was this one. At a dinner gathering that my partner and I were hosting, my transgendered friend, Jay, cornered me in the kitchen. She put her large hand over mine and she said, Rosaria, this Bible reading is changing you. She was right, and I felt exposed. But what if it's true, I asked. What if Jesus is a real and risen Lord? What if we are all in trouble? Jay exhaled deeply and sat down in the chair across from mine. Her eyes looked wise, and she said, Rosaria, I was a Presbyterian minister for 15 years. I prayed that the Lord would heal me, but he didn't. If you want, I will pray for you. This encounter, <laughs> I was still drinking at the time, but not nearly enough <laughs> for me to make this up. <laughs> <laughs> this encounter gave me secret, tacit permission to keep reading the Bible. My dear friend Jay had also read it cover to cover many times and had rooted around in its deep crevices for life purpose and help. But the bomb she dropped enraged me. Who is this Jesus who heals some but not others? No peace and social justice activist wants some unequal opportunity God. And the next day, when I returned home from work, I found two large milk crates spilling over with theological books, Jay's books. She was giving them to me. And in Calvin's Institutes, in the margins of the exposition of the Book of Romans and in Jay's handwriting was a warning. Watch Romans 1. And this is what it says. Romans 1, 21 to 27. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Now I find the, the, found the verb clauses here to be particularly arresting. 
did not honor God, did not give thanks, engaged in futile speculations, became fools, exchanged the incorruptible for the corruptible. God gives us over to our lusts, and when we look at the world through our lusts, we dishonor our bodies and we worship the world. This verse seemed to provide a haunting literary echo to Genesis 3, where Eve's desire to live independently of God made perfect sense to me. If I were Eve, I would have done the same thing. And at the same time, this seemingly innocent sin attributed to Adam because of his headship served as the leverage for the whole world to come tumbling down, fierce and fast, bloody and brilliant. The two verses, one in Genesis and one in Romans, stood out as the bookends of my life. Not just my life, that's the rub. If the Bible is true, as an eternal frame, then Genesis 3 and Romans 1 stood out as the table of contents of what ails the world. Indeed, Romans 1 does not end by highlighting homosexuality as the worst and most extreme example of the sin of failing to give God glory for creating us. Here is where the passage finds its crescendo, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinances of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. This last line grabbed me by the throat. It told me that if we cannot receive a blessing from God, we will demand acceptance from man. As the faculty advisor to many of the LGBT groups on campus, this really cut me to the core. But I also took note of the theological diagnosis. Homosexuality, at least according to the Bible, is not the end point of the problem, not for God or for the world. Homosexuality is not the unpardonable sin nor is it the worst of all sins, at least not to God. But it is presented here as one step in the journey. Homosexuality seemed then consequential, not causal. Homosexuality, from God's point of view, is an identity-rooted ethical outworking of this, failing to rigorously relinquish my identity to God's story and failing to understand that the fall rendered even my deepest, most primal feelings untrustworthy and untrue. Now, I had taught, studied, read, and lived a very different notion of homosexuality. And for the first time in my life, I wondered if I was wrong. And this stopped me in my tracks, because somehow it was easier to hate the Bible when it squared off against me. But now that it was getting under my skin, it became a foe of a different and more menacing kind. I tried to toss the Bible and its teachings in the trash. I really tried. But Ken was my friend at this point, and he encouraged me to keep reading. I trusted him, and so I did. As I read and reread the Bible, I kept catching my wings in its daily embrace, and I was fighting the idea that the Bible is inspired and inerrant, 
that is that its meaning and purpose has a holy and supernatural authority that has protected it over the years of its canonicity and that it is the repository of truth. How could a smart cookie like me embrace these things? I didn't even believe in truth. I was a postmodernist. I believed in truth claims. I believed that the reader constructed the text, that a text's meaning found its power only in the reader's interpretation of it. Without a reader, a book is just paper and glue, I told my students over and over again. How could this one book lay claim to a birthright and progeny totally different from all the others? That this book was supernatural was becoming more and more evident to me. As I was reading and discussing these things with Ken, he pointed out to me that Jesus is the word made flesh and that knowing Jesus demands embracing the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of someone's imagination. The whole Bible, even the places that took my life captive. And after years and years of this, something happened. The Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world. And then one Sunday morning, two years after I first started meeting with Ken and Floyd, and two years after I started reading the Bible for my research, I left the bed that I shared with my lesbian lover, and an hour later I sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. I say this not to be lurid, but to remind us that we simply never know the treacherous journey that some people take to arrive at the pew that we share Lord's Day after Lord's Day. Conspicuous of my appearance, I reminded myself that I came there to meet God, not to fit in. The first sermon that I heard Ken preach was intended for children. Whew, I thought, this is just my speed. <laughs> Ken started to talk about the narrow gate and the wide gate and made some big deal about some silly prop that was in his pocket. I didn't get that part. <laughs> Actually, I didn't get most of the sermon. My mind kept wandering to last year's Gay Pride March, wide as it was with people just like me. And that made me wonder, why does my mind keep wandering to the wide path? I kept going back to church to hear more sermons, and I had made friendships with people in the church by then, and I appreciated the way that they talked about the sermons throughout the week, how the word of God dwelt in them, and how they referenced it in the details of their days. English professors by training love cross-referencing. <laughs> and I muddled over this in my mind. Cross-referencing the Bible with your life places you inside God's story, inside God's ontology. Is this safe? Is this deadly? I pondered these matters. Ken was preaching through the Gospel of Matthew with its bewildering cast of characters and problems unsuspecting folks separated unto the gospel, seeds choked by the world, feeding thousands with some poor and nameless kids bread and fish. Poor guy. And then Jesus's cutting question to impetuous Peter, do you still lack understanding? And one Lord's Day, Pastor Ken just stopped his sermon right there and turned his steel blue eyes on us and held us in a long pause before he repeated the question, congregation, he said, did Christ ever say this to you? This startled me. This was my question. This question was for me. Do I still lack understanding? Who is speaking here? I wondered. 
There was something about the hermeneutic of preaching that disarmed me. And indeed, it still does. The image that crashed like waves in a raging sea of me and everyone I loved suffering in hell vomited into my consciousness and gripped me in its teeth. Not because we were gay, but because we were proud. We wanted to be autonomous. We rejected the Bible's interpretive authority over our sexuality, our sexual identity, and our sexual practice. It was our hearts and minds first. Our bodies and identities followed. I got it, and I heard it, finally. I counted the costs, and I did not like the math. And this was my crucible, and this is my crucible. If the Bible is true, I was dead. And if the Bible is false, then I am simply the biggest fool on earth. But God's promises rolled in like another round of waves into my world. And one Lord's Day, Ken was preaching on John 7, 17. If anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. This verse, verse exposed the quicksand in which my feet were stuck. I was a thinker. I was paid to read books and write about them and tell you what to think about them. And I expected in all areas of my life that understanding came before obedience and not the other way around. I wanted God to show me on my terms why homosexuality was a sin. I wanted to be the judge, not the one being judged. Perhaps I thought like Eve in the garden, I wanted to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that I could become and replace God. And I wondered, hadn't I already done this? Hadn't we all? If my consciousness fell in Adam's sin as the Bible purports, <laughs> No wonder I couldn't think my way out of this quandary. This wasn't a game of thinking and the matching of wits. Could my heart echo God's call for obedience? Could I will to do God's will just this once? The stakes were so very high because they simply always are. But this verse promised understanding after obedience, and I wrestled with the question, did I really want to understand homosexuality from God's point of view? Or did I just want to argue with him? I prayed that night that God would give me the willingness to obey before I understood. Starting with my own sexuality was too scary and too impossible. So I started with Jesus. I prayed that God would be pleased to reveal his son in me. I prayed that I would be a vessel of Jesus. And then I moved to gender. I do not know why, but I had a driving, somewhat oxy oxymoronic desire to make biblical sense of my place in the world as a woman defined and covered by God. And so I prayed that God would make me a godly woman, laughing in my unbelief at the insanity of this prayer. I prayed that God would give me the faith to repent of a sin, of my sin, at its root. But what is the root of my sin? I did not then and I do not now think that homosexuality was the root of my sin. According to the Bible, homosexuality is the fruit of a much larger issue. It is an ethical outworking of a state of mind. That's the sin of it. Not its sexual practice, genetic disposition, hormonal difference, or sexual orientation. At least not to God. And perhaps because I was an old Marxist at heart, the concept that ideas have a material force has always seemed simply quite on target to me. But how does one repent of a sin that doesn't feel at all like a sin, but rather normal, not bothering another soul kind of life? 
And how had I come to this place? What is the root of the sin of sexual identity? I was a jumble of emotions, but I prayed that the Lord would help me to see my life from his point of view. And so the next morning, I woke up, and when I looked in the mirror, I looked the same. <laughs> and I felt the same, too. <laughs> but when I looked in the mirror of the Bible, I wondered, am I a lesbian, or has this been a case of mistaken identity? If Jesus could split the world asunder, divide the soul and the spirit, judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, could he make my true identity prevail? Who am I? Who will God have me to be? I still felt like a lesbian in my body, in my heart. That was, I felt my real identity. But what is my true identity, I wondered. The Bible makes clear that the real and the true have a troubled relationship this side of eternity. For many people in the Bible, their true identity and calling only comes after a long struggle with God, with wilderness, and with dreams and hopes and plans. The Bible makes clear that my future and my calling always echo an attribute of God. Obedience, at least in my life, always constrains. It almost always mirrors suffering, as every selection implies a sacrifice. So what is bigger, I wondered, my lesbian identity or God's authority over me and holy sovereignty over the world? Who is this Jesus? Did I know him? Did I still lack understanding? Could I trust him? And then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus. There are no altar calls in a Reformed Presbyterian church. You know, so the guy whose back of the head I had stared at for a couple of years, colic I could memorize, had no idea what was going on with me. Um, we were singing from Psalm 119, line 56. This is mine because forever all thy precepts I preserve. After I sang these words, I checked them in the Bible just to make sure the Psalter didn't have some wacky misprint in it. And the Bible used a helping verb and noted the verse like this. This has become mine. And something about that helping verb really made something shift in me. Two weight-bearing walls collapsed in my mind. The first wall came crashing down because I had just sung condemnation unto myself, and I was in tune enough with the Holy Spirit to feel the convicting rebuke of that. This Bible was not mine. I had scorned it and cursed it and despised it. But I had been reading and rereading it, and the use of the helping verb here, has and has become, troubled me. Two years of laborious reading embodies the helping verb has. It shows process, journey, pilgrimage, and danger. But I was not, quote unquote, in Christ, and therefore could not possibly keep these precepts, God's law, not in word, heart change, or deed. And here was the shattering of the second wall. I had read the Bible many times through at this point, and I saw for myself that it had a holy author. I saw for myself that it was a canonized collection of 66 books with a unified biblical revelation. And I heard for myself that the, when the words, this has become mine, came out of my mouth in congregational singing, I was attesting to this one simple truth that the line of communication that God ordained for his people required this wrestling with scripture. 
and that I truly wanted to both hear God's voice breathed into my life, and I wanted God to hear my pleas. The fog burned away. The whole Bible, each jot and tittle, was my open highway to a holy God. My hands let go of the wheel of self-invention. I came to Jesus alone, open-handed and naked. I had no dignity upon which to stand. As an advocate for peace and social justice, I thought I was on the side of kindness, integrity, and care. It was thus a crushing revelation to discover it. It was Jesus I had been persecuting the whole time. Not just some historical figure named Jesus, but my Jesus, my prophet, my priest, my king, my savior, my redeemer, my friend, that Jesus. In this war of worldviews, Ken and Floyd were there. The church who had been praying for me for years, they were there. Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. I lost everything but the dog. Of course, there's only one thing to do when you meet the living God. You must fall on your face and repent of your sins. I could think of only one sin from which to repent, pride. My life was truly filled with pride, and I mean that quite literally. Pride posters, pride t-shirts, pride coffee mugs, the rainbow flag that hung in front of my house was a pride flag. I even had a dog bowl that was a pride doggy bowl. You know, Reformed Presbyterians aren't big on signs and wonders, but I don't know. So I repented of my pride, the pride that led me to believe that I could invent my own rules for faith and life and sexual autonomy, the pride that said that I was entitled to live separately from God, the pride that led me to believe that self-worth was self-invented. Repentance is bittersweet business. Repentance is not just a conversion exercise. Repentance is the posture of a Christian. It is our daily fruit, our hourly washing, our minute-by-minute wake-up call, our reminder of God's creation, Jesus' blood, and the Holy Spirit's comfort. Repentance is the only no-shame solution to a renewed Christian conscience because it proves only the obvious, that God was right all along. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I had to gain Christ, but I did. Softly the voice of God sang a sanguine love song into the rubble of my world, and I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank from the means of grace that God provides, Bible reading, prayer, psalm singing, fellowship of the saints, and then later church membership and the Lord's Supper. I took respite in private priests and then Christian community. Eventually, God placed me in a covenant family as a wife, a mother, and a teacher. God radically changes people from the heart. But the proof of conversion is the heart changed by Jesus. We do not look to ourselves to see if we measure up. We do not use our personal feelings as proof of gospel life. And we do not look to ourselves for this one simple fact. We do not measure up. Jesus measures up for us, and that's the point.
So what about homosexuality? Did I ever get some special insight from the Holy Spirit, the telegram, you know, why it's a sin? Did I ever feel that unnaturalness that Romans 1 outlines? Or, as a pastor, pastor friend recently put it, Rosaria, when did the yuck factor about homosexual sex finally hit you upside the head? I really have to wonder if people ask you such obnoxious questions. <laughs> I don't think this guy read the last book because he's in the next one. <laughs> With all due respect. Well, that's simply not the order that that ever happened in. And if you're waiting for me to say that the naturalness of my life as a lesbian hit me upside the head, you're just going to have to still wait on that. The sinfulness of sin unfolded for me in two ways. The authority of the Bible and the sweetness of my union with Christ alone. At a certain point in my life, I knew that I had to turn the wheel over to God. A little like an Alzheimer's patient in a flashing moment of mental lucidity, in the same way that he might sign over his rights to his able-minded caregiver, a believer signs over her rights of interpretation to the God of the Bible. I learned in that crucible that I was not to love or cherish anything that God calls sin. Psalm 66, 18 puts it this way, if I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. The verb to note is cherished. I don't think we can feel, I don't think we could necessarily change how we feel about certain sin patterns, but we can change whether we cherish them or not. That's about the best I can give you. <laughs> when we cherish sin, we are separated from a holy God. And when you defend your right to a particular sin, you are cherishing it. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 declares this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. When we cherish sin, we build a wall between us and our maker, and we are deceived to believe that our sin is not sin. We call, when we do that, we call God a liar and use our personal feelings as proof. All our personal feelings ever prove is that original sin is real and original sin and the deceptiveness of sin are inseparable. As 1 John 1.10 puts it, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Indeed, homosexuality is a sin, but so too is homophobia. For me, the root of my lesbianism was pride. For others, the root may be lust or sexual addiction. And some sins are simply harder to battle than others. But for God, when we call sin, sin, and repent of it, no matter what our personal feelings or attachments on the subject, we honor God's authority. Indeed, by so doing, we are living out question four of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Repentance itself is a fruit of Christian living. Now, for those of us in this room who struggle with any kind of same-sex attraction, this is a hard and a heavy cross to bear. 
but I also know that if you are in Christ, Jesus will carry the heavier part of this burden. But please, to the Christians who do not struggle with gay or lesbian temptations, do not add unbearable weight to this burden by thinking that the sin of homosexuality is bigger or different than all the others, or that its solution is heterosexuality. The solution to all sin is the same, Christ's atoning blood. In Christ, we are new creatures, redeemed men and women who have been buried with Christ through baptism unto death, Romans 6, 4 says, are no longer slaves to the sin that once defined us. Although likely, that sin still knows our names and knows how to find us. So what does a person like me do with her past? I have not forgotten the flowing contours of my past. Body memories still call my name. And details intrude into my world very unpredictably, like when I'm homeschooling my children, going over the order of operations in fifth grade math, or kneading the communion bread that I make every week. Well, I take each ancient token to the cross for prayer, for more repentance, for thanksgiving that God is always right about matters of sin and grace, and I don't have to interpret this anymore. I think about what it means to live within the story of the Bible and how repentance is a fruit of my new life in Christ. And Paul's question in Romans 6.21 is when I ask myself, what fruit did you have in the things of which you are now ashamed? The layers of my life in Christ always unfold in a double directional way, past, future. And I've come to understand that this is part of what it means to have a soul that will last forever. So God saved me, but he did not lobotomize me. In spite of what my children might think. <laughs> but bigger than this, I have not forgotten the blood that Jesus surrendered for this life, where gospel faith paves the path of my yearning, questions, doubts, and fears where all aspects of my life, even the afflictions, trials, and tragedies, have meaning and purpose and grace. Christ gives us joy as the strongholds of sin are torn down when we live in the grace of obedience. In Christ, suffering is redemptive. And this includes the suffering that, that occurs when Christ gives us the faith to choose him over ourselves. Well, I speak today about matters that happened over a decade ago. God has taken me on a long journey, and like most pilgrimages, mine seems to engender more questions than answers. And so I'm gonna stop here and turn this over to some of your questions, remembering that we're going to have all day tomorrow together as well. Thank you. Are there any questions, or would you like to finish your dessert and wait for tomorrow? <laughs> okay. Oh, yes. I'm sorry, what's the what?
Right, that's a great question. Right, what are, what are the ways that Christians can minister to folks in the LGBT community with the hopes of sharing the gospel and the hopes of, 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 um, of people coming to Christ? I'm gonna talk a little bit more about this tomorrow, but let me, let me offer a couple of really important things. One, do not presume that the biggest sin in your gay or lesbian neighbor's life is their homosexuality. I, and I think we get really tripped up on that. You know, one of the things Ken Smith did with me is he knew that there was a much bigger sin than my lesbianism, and that was unbelief. You, you, so he wasn't derailed by, you know, sins, plural. He was focused on the biggie. So, so share the gospel, um, but don't be so sure that you really know what the big sins are. Um, you know, I think another, another important thing to do is to be, to, to realize that in, um, you know, so I'm a pastor's wife, that's kind of a funny story, I'll get to it tomorrow a little bit, but um, can you imagine, just sort of picture this with me for a moment, close your eyes if you need to, what would happen if um, this Lord's Day you went to church and you said everything that's on your mind about all the people in your church? How'd that go for you? That'd go really well, wouldn't it? And yet somehow we have this weird, strange burden that if we are in the company of our gay and lesbian neighbors, that somehow we just need to say everything that's on our minds. And that's ridiculous. Um, you know, we need to just have, you know, be grown-ups and have good manners. And don't presume that that means you're not, you're hiding something. Uh, you know, another thing we can do, and I think this is really basic, and it, it, but in our friendships, part of how our friendships function is the intensity of our words match the intensity of our love, right? That's part of how, as friends, we can say hard things to each other. So don't think you're going to get away with making sneaky little raids into people's lives. You want to have a witness? Then you need to get in close. You need to get in close. So, and I'll talk about this tomorrow when we talk about building community. Uh, you know, God's elect people are everywhere. They're everywhere. So we don't have to worry about this. But, you know, another thing we need to do, and I'll talk about this a little bit tomorrow too, is to be mindful of the ghost stories that circulate about gay and lesbian people and to, you know, Christians are called to be truth tellers. So if you've got some, you know, some heart work to do on this, do it. Do it. But you simply cannot put the hand of the hurting into the hand of the Savior without getting close enough to get hurt yourself. So that's sort of a universal. Does that help? Does that give you a little bit? But we, I'll talk some more about that tomorrow because that's, that's the ultimate question. Any other questions before we close? Yes. Right. Well, the, 
the, the question, well, there's sort of two questions there. One question was, um, if you have small children, how do you interface on this subject in two ways? One is, you know, the, the lesbians next door look like they have a great relationship, and if I'm trying to tell my children that homosexuality is a sin, the, the witness across the street isn't, you know, it, it, it's, not, it's not doing my bidding right now. Um, and then the other question is, um, how do you interface with, the, with sexual ethics? So if you have a, um, a sister who is in a heterosexual relationship but's living with her boyfriend and she comes home for Thanksgiving, do you let them share a room? Or if you have a lesbian sister, do you let them share a room? You know, that second question is just so ultimately a private call in your house that I don't know what to say about it, you know, I, you know except for that you want to be consistent um, and you want to give your children a consistent sense of that. So, you know, in our, in our house, we would not have, um, you know, um, a heterosexual couple living together sharing the guest room. It, you know, it just it would not fly. So, you know, that's in some ways, that's the easier one because it just kind of falls under the house rules, take your shoes off, you know, <laughs> close the door behind you, don't let the cat out, you know, that's an easier one. You know, I, I think that, first of all, Christians have to realize that matters of sin and grace are not image wars. Um, you know, and maybe it's just because of, you know, who I am, but we read through the Bible in family devotions, and uh, you'll find out tomorrow, family devotions is never just us. It's, you know, it's everybody that comes to our house at a certain, you know, dinner time. But, um, so over the years, my children have always known that I had been an atheist and that I had been a lesbian. It's not like one day we sat down and we said, okay, kids, you know, we've got really big news for you, okay? Okay, so sit down. You, know, you were adopted and mama was a lesbian. Okay, whoo, I'm glad we got that. Don't ask any questions, you know, we're done. I mean, you know, ridiculous, right? I mean, we've always been open about this and, um, um, and so they have always come to understand that, that, that common grace is in the world. And, you know, I think if you're trying to teach your children about the, the complexity of sin, you know, sin isn't just a matter of failing to follow the rules. Right? Sin is not a, um, it's not just about knowing better. I mean, if that were the case, you wouldn't need a savior. You know, you'd need a 12-step a, a program or something. I'm sure, you know. So, so I, I think that it is complex. Um, but in the same way that, you know, our children know to pray for our unbelieving family, you know, whom they love. Right? Kent and I are the only Christians in our family. Um, my children love their aunts and uncles and cousins. And I do, too. I, I, you know, I don't know how else to say that. So... My hope for my children is this, that when they are at an age when sin grabs them by the throat, and it's never the sin you anticipate, all right, when they are at the age that they are having a moral crisis every nanosecond, my hope is that they're going to say, well, of course I can talk to my parents. You know, of course I can. Do you remember what our house looked like? <laughs> Do you remember the people we had over? You know, they loved them. You know, God is the God of salvation. And, and I think if we share the gospel and give the Holy Spirit plenty of room to work in the hearts of people, we will see great things. 
But if we worry about image, what will my children think? You know, my children know that our, you know, our lesbian neighbors are great parents. And we were at a, um, a baseball game a few weeks ago, and I had just, I broke my, a bone in my foot, and so I had just been put in this cast, and I just, I was dying, and my friend, you know, Susanna had given me all of the Advil she had with her, and I finally just said, okay, you know, I've gotta leave. And, um, you know, so my husband and I said, well, we can, you know, you know, we just said to our neighbor, you take the kids home, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we'll see you later. <laughs> um, you know, it didn't turn out that way. I have a son who's um, very, very afraid of fireworks, and so, you know, it was, it was obviously I was just gonna have to tough it out. But, you know, the truth is, while we wouldn't necessarily believe that our, our lesbian neighbors would be um, ideal spiritual counselors, counselors for our children, do they know how to take care of kids? Well, yes, they do. They have children. I take care of their kids. I mean, you know, I, I, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting that everybody has these boundaries, but, but we spend a lot of time in our house talking about being image bearers of a holy God. And what I want my children to realize is that there is no such thing as sexual orientation. It's an invention. I'll talk about it tomorrow. We have soul orientation. And your soul, will, there are two things that will last forever. The word of God and the souls of people. Why trifle with those other things? So yes, my children know that homosexuality is a sin, but you know, they also know that uh, there are a lot of other sins out there that are toppling over in the world. And so um, it's a balance question. It's a balance question. You know, after DOMA, it was really interesting because, um, uh, you know, we're very close with our neighbors and we live in one of those, you know, it's kind of an, a little bit of an urban area. So I have one neighbor who would always bring a slab of linoleum to a barbecue because he never knew when he'd need to start break dancing. And you know what I mean? So it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a, a fun, it's a fun place to live. But, you know, we were able to talk pretty openly you know, across a wide spectrum of differences about what, what this was going to mean. And um, again, I, I think that's important. I think it's important to, for, for children to see their parents wrestling with how much they love their unsaved neighbors and how much they want them to come to Christ. Not so that they can look better in our eyes. Not so that we can say, see, I told you so but so they can have truly the peace that is in Christ alone. But you know, there's a rigor to that peace. And Christians have to be willing to help with that also. There's a rigor to a peace in Christ when you have to give up a big piece of yourself for it. So we need not be, um, I don't know, naive about that. And so teaching your children what accompanied suffering means is way better than teaching them soccer, I think. I mean, I, you know, really, we, it, it, we, have, we have tipped the scale in ways that are not very helpful to our children when it comes to real Christian living. So I'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow, but as you can see, I have strong opinions. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You're going to have to shout because you are like, I can't even see your eyes. So stand up.
Yeah, no, make it like a good, you know, a good field hockey voice, okay? All right. Did you all on this side hear the question? Okay, good field hockey voice. Thank you. That's really important in a group this size. Um, you know, a great way to mend all relationships is if you've sinned against a person to repent of it and say that. You know, it doesn't mean you're not you're not you know driving you know the bus over the gospel. If you know, and you don't have to make it long and windy and baggy, but. Um, you know, if you feel that you have sinned against a person, you ask for forgiveness. If you feel that you've been harsh about a person, harsh to a person about um, a private disclosure, um, you know, you apologize for it. You apologize for it. And you say, hey, you know what? Thanks for trusting me with something really important in your life. You know, and, and you could leave it at that. Um, see, because you can't really share the gospel until you have a safe relationship because the gospel is unsafe all right the gospel is an unsafe thing in the lives of unbelievers it's not jesus and okay you're it's not an add and stir jesus owns every inch of this earth and every inch of you so you know if you've sinned against her you apologize and you thank her for sharing important things. And then as your relationship deepens, you can share. You can share the gospel. Um, and, and you want to. But, you know, again, I wouldn't presume that because she's in a lesbian relationship that homosexuality is the biggest sin in her life. I, I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I maybe just, I'm blind. But, there, you know, people are struggling with really big you know, big issues. And, you know, this is the one that's in the spotlight right now, too. And so, you know, the other thing is when sharing, sharing the gospel with people, you know, I couldn't start with the biggie. You know, I don't know. Does anybody else just have to kind of warm up into repentance? You know, you kind of start with the, you know, the more obvious things. And in fact, it's hard to even know what the big ones are. But homosexuality is a, is a fruit. It's not a root sin. And so you need to deal with it that way. Don't, you know. So I would say if you've sinned, repent. Right? All right. Other, is it just, yes. Big voice, soccer voice this time. Yeah. Right. Right, 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 right. Well, you know, that is something that American Christians really struggle with. Um, even if we are in um, churches that don't claim 
the prosperity gospel. You know, we're such, um, you know, we just, we're, you know, we want democracy for everyone. You have another question with that? Right. Oh yeah, no, I, 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 it, it is a general question. It is not just specific to homosexuality. Here's what you need, we all need to remember. That we live in a fallen world. And whether we like it or not, um, the, the sin of Adam and the consequences of the sin of Adam have affected every part of our beings, our minds, our hearts, our hands. There's no way to get around that. And, and, and I think the other reality is that, you know what, some people have more crosses to bear than others. And you know, one of the things that you notice that I certainly learned uh, as a parent um, adopting teenagers, you know, one of the hardest things of adopting a teenager is that you are parenting your emotional better. You are parenting someone who has survived things that would simply have killed me before I even got out the door. And for many of us, our love and our friendship is based in a reciprocity of pain. And it's very hard for us to be loving and encouraging to people who genuinely suffer more than we do. You know what, Say, unwanted same-sex attraction is a very hard and heavy cross for people to bear within the church. Not so hard if you're not a Christian. I mean, especially today, I don't know what to say. But if you are within the church, it is very hard. And the, you know, one of the things that you might ask yourself is, um, have I been, not intending to, leaning on that cross? You know, as, as my sister is trying to bear it, have I been helping her lift it up? Or have I been pushing it down? And you know, that's not just a question about homosexuality or unwanted same-sex attraction. It's a question about any number of things. You know, we have to stop, we have to get over this idea that um, the best way to share the gospel is for people to always see the joy of Christ. Because you know, it's a bloody joy. It is not, it is, it, it's not, it's not any, it's not like anything else in the world. So maybe one way that people could truly see that we are Christians is that we can engage in accompanied suffering. And we don't need to have a reciprocity of suffering to be friends. We can actually love people who suffer more than we do. I think it would really change things not just on the issue of homosexuality. I think it would be, uh, it would change how, what our witness is to a watching world when the question comes up, what do Christians stand for? Other questions? Yes. Yeah. Right, right, right. Right. Well, I was initially writing a book on the rise of the religious right from a lesbian feminist perspective. So it, you know, originally, I know, isn't that funny? It originally was just like everything else in my life, a research project. And I 
could easily be the chairperson of Overreaders Anonymous. Okay, I mean it is a, it, it you know it, it's an illness, but you know, man, I'm full in. So, um, uh, and I think Ken was sort of, you know, this is the I, I this is not the first way that I met Ken. I, I met Ken originally. Um, well, through the article on the Promise Keepers, one of the young elders in the church had put the article on Ken's desk and said, look, this woman is trouble, and we need to shut her up, okay? <laughs> she, she authored the domestic partnership policy at this university. She is trouble. You know, and Ken kind of looked up, and he read the article, and he said, oh, you know, how about if Floy and I have her over for dinner? And, you know, you can just imagine the young elder going, oh, you know? <laughs> <laughs> what is this, you know, he's got to retire. He's too old to do this job anymore. Um, so I think Ken was, you know, thrilled. Um, I was also the director of undergraduate studies at the time, and Ken came to me with a proposal at one point and said, you know, I'm very concerned that English majors are not reading the Bible, and I'd like to give a lecture to your you know, to your English majors, which I thought was the most absurd thing I'd ever heard in my life, right? You know, I mean, I felt like a mama bear at the time, like, oh yeah, I'm gonna let some evangelical wacko at my students, you know, forget it. And I think I just said, well, forget it. You can't talk to them, Ken, but if, you, if, you, if you're up for a student of one, you know, you, you have me. And he said, yeah, great, love to, no problem. I mean, you know, I mean, that's the other thing about Ken is that he was not afraid um, and his house looked a lot like my house, too, and I couldn't help but to notice that, the aesthetic. Um, in my house, every Thursday night, my partner and I just opened our home to anybody in the gay and lesbian community who just wanted to come and talk because, you know, professors like pastors are totally out of touch with the people they, they need to be in touch with unless you do that. And it cannot be by invitation and it cannot be A through M, bring a covered dish, and it cannot be, you know what I'm saying? It just has to be the door is open, and I'll actually have food on the table that night or something. But, you know, Ken and Floyd sort of had the same thing going. You know, I, I never knew who was going to be at their table, and, um, you know, and after a while they would, you know, come to my house on Thursdays, and uh, they spent a lot of time with my transgendered friend, Jay, uh, who came to church with me on an occasion. Um, you know, I'm, I am sure that there are a lot of people saying, why did we pray for Rosaria? <laughs> she just, yeah, this is getting scary, you know, because it just is, right? A lot happens. You know, you just, it changes the, 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 the nature of a church. So, as grace will do, right? As grace will do. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't know what to say except for that doing life together you cannot share the gospel without doing life together. And there's no way to do life together without it being messy and you may be getting your heart broken. Okay, there are lots of, okay. Yes, loudly though, because now those people need to know what you're saying. Okay, what happened to my friend Jay after those two years? Um, well, as I said, Jay uh, did come to church with me. Um, Jay was my constant friend, my most faithful friend. Uh, when, I, uh, when I committed my life to Christ and I joined the church, I became a very scary person. You know, I think a lot of people have said, oh, isn't it wonderful, you know, now you're a Christian, you could, 
you could share your testimony with all of the gay and lesbian people. Well, no, see, their secrets were no longer safe with me. I was the big betrayer. I was, you know, I was dangerous. But Jay really stuck with me. Um, and ultimately, we really just had a theological difference because um, I was really working on what repentance means. And do I have to feel like it's a sin to repent of it? And, um, and, and Jay really came to a place where she just believed that, um, that um, our gender and our sexuality are not really owned by God. So she came to a more of a revisionist understanding of the, uh, of the Bible, and we, we did, we, we, remain, we remained friends while I was in Syracuse, which, you know, took a lot of sacrifice on her part, took a lot of courage on her part. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't considered safe anymore. Um, but, you know, sometimes we think that these are justice issues, but a lot of things come down to theological issues. And we had a, a big theological difference. I think this is the sign. <laughs> this is the sign. Yeah. What is the sign that we stop now? Because yes. you're going to see me tomorrow? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.